and I've done, I don't know, over the years, maybe 60, 70 licensing applications. And the VARA one was by far the most difficult I've ever done. And the ongoing supervision is probably by far the most stringent. I mean, just to put things in perspective, we have as a crypto hedge fund, weekly reporting to the regulators. There's monthly reporting of our financials to the regulator. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you spend any time listening to the anti-crypto crowd, you'll hear a common refrain, crypto is unregulated. And while that might have been true in the early days of Bitcoin, we've moved pretty far from that reality now in 2024. In fact, Hong Kong, Singapore, the United Kingdom, and Dubai have been racing to establish regulatory regimes that are strict and focused on consumer protection, but also support innovation that only crypto can bring. Advocates argue this approach will attract the next generation of financial services companies to their cities. In this episode, I get to speak with crypto media personality and thought leader, Henry Arslanian, who's the co-founder and managing partner at Nine Blocks Capital Management. Nine Blocks made news recently by becoming the first licensed crypto hedge fund in Dubai. Henry and I talk about his experience during the licensing process, the stringent ongoing oversight that's been put in place by the Dubai Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority, or VARA. He also shares his insights on the challenges and opportunities faced by crypto asset managers during market downturns and the growing role of stablecoins and DeFi across the industry. And just for fun at the end, we wrap the episode by grading Henry's top 10 crypto predictions for 2023 and his thoughts on the metaverse, crypto gaming, and the need to utilize some of TradFi's best practices in crypto. Last thing, if you're excited to think about what comes next in crypto, then you definitely must attend the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is coming up on April 9th and 10th. We're back in New York City. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers. And if you buy your ticket, as soon as you finish listening to this episode, you'll get a discount before the prices increase. As always, the link to register can be found in the show notes. Today, I have an amazing guest, Henry Arcelanian, who is the co-founder, managing partner at Nine Blocks Capital, also a prolific podcaster, content creator. You can find him everywhere on every platform. Henry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ian, and uh, thank you for all the great work you guys are doing with Chainalysis. A big fan of the contribution you guys are bringing to the crypto and broader Web3 community. Mutual admiration. I'm, I'm a big fan of all your content. It's taught me a lot as I've been running this podcast the last year and a half. Tips and tactics, hugely appreciated. Hey, I want to start the conversation off with some big news that just broke this week as we're recording. The virtual asset regulator in Dubai that we call VARA granted your firm, Nine Blocks, I think you're the first licensed crypto asset manager in the region. Talk about what that's all about. Yeah, we just became uh, the first crypto hedge fund to get a license by VARA. Like you said, it's the virtual asset regulatory authority in Dubai. What's interesting, Ian, is that you know Dubai two years ago made a big decision of having the world's first crypto-specific regulator. And as many of your listeners know, the crypto industry, unlike what many people may think, wants to be regulated. They want actually set of rules that everybody can abide with and have operate on a level playing field. And what's really amazing here in Dubai, they created that that framework. Uh, and we are the first crypto hedge fund to go through. And uh, it's been obviously very important because as, a, as for us at Nine Blocks, we believe in having an institutional setup. We believe in being regulated. We believe in best practices. We believe in governance, transparency, and everything that you would expect that institutional investors uh, want. It's been, it's been actually quite an interesting journey and in, uh, getting, the, getting the license. And uh, there's a number of other firms, I think, who are trying now to do the same. It's a very difficult license. You know, it took us some time to get it. And not only getting it is one thing, but the ongoing supervision is uh, very, very stringent. By background, I'm a, I'm a hedge fund lawyer when I started my career. 
Uh, and I've done, I don't know, over the years, maybe 60, 70 licensing applications. And the VARA one was by far the most difficult I've ever done. And the ongoing supervision is probably by far the most stringent. I mean, just to put things in perspective, we have as a crypto hedge fund, weekly reporting to the regulators, wallet addresses, uh, confirming there's no PEP or high risk transactions. There's monthly reporting of our financials to the regulator, along with a suite of other reporting uh, assets from our assets to reserves, counterparties, and all the kind of different things. So you know, there's an image people have that Dubai is light touch, uh, the Middle East. I would challenge any of the regulators listening today on the show. Fortunately or unfortunately, I think what what happens now with Vara is probably the most stringent regime in the world right now. Unfortunately, not many people know about it. I think Vara should do a better job probably on the marketing side. Uh, you know, they do a very good job. And I think in life, what you do is very important. And what people think you do is also equally important. I think on the, the second part, like any regulator, they may not be as good as they should, but I'm sure that's something they can work on over the next couple of months and years. It really is amazing what's happened in, in Dubai, where they went from really zero crypto presence in the ecosystem and have completely transformed that. I mean, I, it seems if we kind of follow the trend out that they become, if not the financial capital of the crypto ecosystem, one of a few. You recently moved there as well, right? Absolutely. You know, I spent the last, I would say, 15 years of my career in Hong Kong. I'm originally yeah. from uh, Montreal, you know, but Armenian background, born and raised in Montreal in Canada, then went to China and then Hong Kong. And where I was very active in Hong Kong and the growth of the, the birth and the growth of the crypto ecosystem there about two years ago. And I was very instrumental also in the early days of the birth of the crypto community here. And I, I remember very well meeting with a government official here who was telling me, Henry, we're not in the top 20 and we want to be number one. And I was like, yeah, famous last words. And I've, I've heard this. You know, before this, I used to be the global crypto leader at PwC and a partner there. So, I've, you know, I worked with many regulators over the years, many governments, many central banks. And you know, many of them speak, you know, big words, but actually the execution that obviously it doesn't follow through. And here I have to say they've really done it. It's really impressive what's happening in Dubai with VARA, with the IFC and the DFSA, what's happening in Abu Dhabi with ADGM, and also some of the smaller emirates as well around across the UAE, like Ras al Khaimah, for example, that's, that is coming up right now with regulations on the DAOs, on decentralized autonomous organizations. But I mean, to put things in perspective, as a crypto hedge fund, I'm in VARA. Uh, it's an area called One Central. It's a free zone here. Literally, pretty much all my counterparties, Ian, are one minute walk away from me. That's incredible. And when you think about building an ecosystem, the fact that I can have all my counterparties one minute walk away from me, I see them downstairs when I'm buying lunch, when I'm getting coffee, it really creates it. And they built this in less than two years. And uh, I think there's no doubt in my mind right now, as you said, that the UAE has become now the global crypto hub. For crypto native firms, Vara Dubai is doing a great job. For, let's say, traditional funds or asset managers who are getting into crypto, the IFC, DFSA is a great job. ADGM, when it comes to many things, including they just released a new law on DLT foundations. Abu Dhabi is playing a big role. So I think there's a lot of activity. I mean, what I just heard that Vara alone has over 800 applications. Forget 50% of those. If 10% of those go through, it becomes a, one of the, the biggest hub in the world by a multiple of you know three or four. So I think there's a lot of activity going on. For sure, what's happening right now here in the UAE uh, will be a business school <laughs> case study, and people will analyze this for the years to come. Not only the vision, but also most importantly, the execution. And I think that's something the crypto community has appreciated. And this is why you're seeing an influx of not only crypto folks moving here, but crypto companies, including some of the large ones, moving their headquarters here, which is very telling. You know, it's surprising that that is happening given the regulatory scrutiny that you described your companies going through. Because I think what we've seen historically drive some of these migrations of crypto companies has been friendliness, where friendliness meant low oversight. But you're actually saying, no, it's it's incredibly high oversight. So what do you think? Like, 
How has that changed? It's a very good point because uh, the impression, again, many people that are not in our crypto circles think, ah, these guys want to go where it's like low touch, you know, yeah. offshore. And I cannot emphasize this enough. I mean, if anybody tells you that getting licensed in Dubai is easy, I mean, you should hang up the phone on them. I can tell you firsthand how complicated it was. And I think it showcases actually the genuine interest from the crypto community of being above board, especially after what happened a year ago with FTX, yeah. where these players want to provide their wallet addresses. They want to provide their proof of reserves. They want to show their financials. They really want to open up and you know show what's under the hood. Because we know that as a community, we are as strong as the weakest member of the group. And I think this is what's driving a lot of the activity. Uh, it's been interesting because, you know, people often will confuse friendliness with being relaxed. And I think that that's very wrong. For example, I just came back from Abu Dhabi, where Abu Dhabi is very pro-crypto. But if you want to get licensed, it's very strict. And yeah. I can tell you that's not a place where you want to do something wrong because uh, <laughs> it's obviously very harsh enforcement as well. So actually, when you're well, you're somewhere you feel welcome, where the rules are clear and the rules are made in a way that they can adapt and innovate as the industry grows. But you know that if you don't abide by the rules, there's actually very strong supervision. I think that's a great place in the crypto community to yeah. grow. And this is why I remain very bullish on the future of the UAE as a regulated global crypto hub. Yeah, it's very attractive to anybody who's running a legitimate business, right? Here are the rules. Here's how you have to operate your business in this way. If you do this, everything's going to be good. The ambiguity that we have in the US right now, I think, is driving some people nuts, right? It's very difficult. You know, as a somebody who's been in crypto for a long time, as a lawyer, I, I genuinely believe in giving people a choice, right? Yeah. I think whether, and what's beautiful right now in the crypto world, people have the choice, right? And you have the choice of moving your business where you want to move it. These rules are, nobody's forcing you to comply with. These firms are coming here, getting licensed, are doing so because they want to be, uh, they want to comply with did Dubai benefit from, um, uh, you mentioned what's happening in the US by some of the ambiguity or let's say uh, confusion that's been shared by other regulators? I, I think absolutely, right? And uh, I think that's what makes the, the world a beautiful place is that, you know, when somebody's not doing a good job, another player can come in and really be a dominant player. So I think uh, kudos to the authorities here. They've done, they've done something that I think many people believed was possible only two, three years ago. Yeah, it's incredible. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm fascinated by people who are starting businesses in crypto. And if I've got the timing right on on nine blocks, you raised your first funds sort of at the tail end of the bull run just about two years ago. And so talk about what it's like to operate through the turbulence of 2022 and then kind of the doldrums that we've seen here in, in 2023. Like, what has that meant for your business? And I imagine this has to be tough, but I'm also not an asset manager. So maybe it's been terrific. No, absolutely. I think, I think to uh, better explain how uh, the difficulties is better, it's good to understand the background. You know, Nine yeah. Blocks was created because we really believed with the vision of becoming the leading crypto asset management firm in the world where you, you can have basically all the governance, the regulation, the transparency, the compliance that you have in a tier one traditional hedge fund, but have it in, in crypto. Like, as I mentioned before, I was uh, I was not only a hedge fund lawyer before, I was in prime brokerage where my specialty was setting up hedge funds for clients. My first book was how to launch a hedge fund. So I've done this over and over many times. Uh, I have to say that launching an institutional grade crypto hedge fund uh, took us two to three times more time than we thought and two to three times more money than we expected. Because it's obviously, if you want to comply with the highest standards, anything from independent directors to governance, to insurance, to security. We decided that we launched the business in 2021. So over two years ago, you know, and then off a couple of months later, FTX happened. 
happened. And it was very interesting, really, the last 12 months, anybody in crypto tells you that it was easy is absolutely lying. It was very difficult. You know, probably the audience who listen to this podcast, they believe in crypto and they've been following it since. Uh, where I found it was the most difficult was when you're dealing with, let's say, institutional allocators, this uh, sovereign wealth funds, uh, pensions, foundations, endowments, and, and the likes. And maybe I would say also some traditional family offices. It's been very difficult to get the message through, you know, they're getting this perception that people had of the industry. Despite that, you know, we believe that actually our view as a, as a firm was that this is the moment that you provide transparency and the players that will survive this will come out stronger. You know, we started and now we're, we, we just crossed our $100 million AUM mark. We have over two years of track record now. We're the first crypto H fund to get licensed. As we're recording this, uh, we just had the six months of consecutive inflows. Amazing. So it shows you that, uh, you know, despite the hard times, it's been, it's been very difficult uh, to be fair, you know, but I think this is why um, I really believe that as we're turning corner and uh, we know we're getting through the players who survive this, I will come out uh, stronger. I think the big difficulty as well was um, the question of perception. I think there was two big things that people wanted to see solve before they started looking at the space again. One was FTX, you know, of course now uh, SBF is hopefully going to jail, but also I think that the trial is done and also the claims have been trading at pretty high. As we're recording yeah. this, the FTX claims are selling at over 60 cents on a dollar. So I think there's been a lot of more positive, you know, momentum on, on the recovery rate of this insolvency of this bankruptcy. And second, I would say is what was going to happen to Binance. So I think when, when I was talking to a lot of institutional allocators, they would often tell me, hey, Henry, we want to see first what's going to happen to Binance. How is that domino going to fall? And there was a lot of actually interest in seeing how is that going to evolve. And now that there's been actually settlement, yes, there's one regulator at SEC that it's still outstanding. But overall, I think we can say that it's been settled. There's been definitely a lot of interest now. Not a, def not a lot, but definitely we felt the, the change of the wind direction since uh, the settlement has been announced. And I think that's very positive for the industry, especially as we go through the you know, the halving, we go through the ETF news and other elements uh, that may act as catalysts over the coming uh, weeks and months. I'm curious, like as an asset manager, how do you set strategy in a downturn? I mean, you've been talking about kind of, I think the investors bringing funds in, but obviously your job is to make them all money. How do you approach, you know, the rocky market that we've had? I would imagine those are very different tactics than what maybe you initially planned to employ during bull run times when you were first first getting started. Well, yes and no, in the sense that obviously when we set up the fund, we have very clear indication of what our strategy is going to be. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that actually, even despite the market downturn, we have to stick by our strategy. Of course, we always innovate and come up with new ways of generating alpha within that strategy. But it was very important that there's no style drift, as we call it. Our strategy and our fund, when we launched it, the first fund that we launched was a market neutral fund. What that means is that actually we don't take any directional view on any type of crypto assets. But you know, our goal is that regardless of whether you believe in Bitcoin, you don't believe in it, whether Bitcoin goes up or other cryptocurrencies go up or down, we generate pure alpha based on the inefficiencies of the market. For example, we do a lot of funding arbitrage between uh, perpetual swaps and spot. We do basis arbitrage, some other stat R, mean reversion and other strategies, but there's always a real market neutral component to it. So it's really taking advantage of the arbitrage opportunities, but again, with no directional risk. And I think that's what really markets where our strategy really outperforms is really when there is a lot of liquidity, a lot of volumes, you know, people are trading. That's where it becomes obviously interesting. But even in, in down markets, as long as there's liquidity and people are trading, whether assets are going up or down, we should be able to generate genuine alpha, real alpha. Yeah. So I think that's what we've been trying to do. And, uh, you know, I 
think we we stuck by our, our strategy from uh, from day one. And I think that's what also investors like as well, the fact that you've been consistent and there's been no style drift and you've been very transparent as well. I think that's something that uh, hopefully we believe the market will reward the transparency uh, despite the difficult year that the crypto industry has had. Do you make bets on certain ecosystems? Like I, if you're looking for liquidity, I would assume that like Ethereum is probably the most interesting just because of the transaction volume in that space and the different number of services and platforms presents greater arbitrage opportunity. But there's so many new chains coming online. Like, how do you make a call? Like, you know, Solana, as an example, looked like it might be dead following the FTX collapse. And yet I'm seeing the asset prices on the native token. Sol is now like actually maybe trading higher than it was in November of last year, pre-FTX collapse. So how do you think about the, the different ecosystems? Yeah, so as a, any institutional grade manager, we have very strict guidelines. First of all, I think there's there's different uh, ways we look at the world. You know, when it comes to, for example, assets we trade on, there needs to be liquidity, there needs to be depth. You know, of, of markets. This is why the the majority of crypto that we trade in a market neutral strategy, and it's the same for pretty much all market neutral managers. It's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or definitely top five or ten coins where there's a lot of liquidity. However, risk management is critical. You know, before making money, you have to make sure you don't lose it and you actually manage your risk properly. Uh, and we look at there's different kinds of risk that we are generally you need to be obsessed with but there's obviously market risk you know what's happening there's also but i don't want to call the counterpart risk for example uh we have very strict counterparty exposure meters we uh tier exchanges you know they have tier one tier two exchanges we monitor the counterparty risk on an ongoing basis to make sure that we are aware of anything that may happen at these exchanges and we monitor it dynamically as well so i think some of these elements there's various elements that come into play when you are looking at managing a market neutral book especially that you know unlike let's say if you're doing a buy and hold strategy strategy where you buy the asset on exchange, you move it to your custodian and you put it in cold storage, for example, when you're trading any market neutral, any trading strategy, you have counterparty risk to exchanges because that's where your assets are sitting at all times. And that's where there's, there's always an exchange risk when you're trading there. So I think counterparty risk becomes fundamental. And I have to say, that's an area I'm very impressed by the crypto industry. I have to say, this is something I think we don't talk a lot uh, about it enough. You know, I was uh, fortunate or unfortunate that in 2008, I was a hedge fund lawyer. At a time, I was helping hedge funds, ironically, against their claims against Lehman and the prime brokers. And then I was at UBS in prime broker where he's helping up set up these bankruptcy remote structures to help protect investor capital. And during the last year, you know, I've seen really a complete 180 from some of our biggest counterparties when it comes to the access they're giving, the transparency they're giving, and really from a due diligence perspective, the openness that they have, which was not the case before. I have to say that I saw in the crypto industry really in three to six months, what in 2008, I saw from a traditional banking world in two to three years. And I think this is something that as a crypto industry, we don't we don't market ourselves as good as we should, because I think there's a lot of work that a lot of the big exchanges have done, which frankly, I think we should be grateful for when it comes to transparency, governance, and the comfort that they provided to the ecosystem. I think an incident like FTX, I think it's unlikely we'll have the same type of fraud that what happened to FTX will happen again. There'll be another incident in a couple of years. I don't know what it will be. There'll be something else. But I think this kind of fraud that we saw with FTX, I think hopefully should not happen. And again, and I think the large platforms uh, have done a pretty good job, actually, on the centralized side in trying to uh, provide a better transparency to the investing counterparties they trade with. That's great to hear, because I think in the wake of the FTX collapse, you know, everybody was running around talking about public proof of reserve statements. And then, you know, you got into this, like, well, is it good enough to know you have the reserves if I can't see the liabilities? And how are we actually like representing your operating budget of your exchange on chain in a way that's cryptographically verifiable? And then the whole thing, I think in a, at least the retail context kind of fizzled out. You don't really see many people talking about this. There's a couple exchanges I had a guest on recently where they're active 
actively publishing both reserves and liabilities. And it's, you know, there's an audit function behind it. So it's happening in a couple of places. But you're saying as a business to business relationship, you've seen a meaningful increase in in the transparency. Well, I think the transparency and the openness that these large exchanges that have provided from pre and post FTX, it's completely day and night. And I think this yeah. is something that is quite impressive. I think there, there's also what is the right mechanism of transparency, you know, whether it's proof of reserves, like you said, there's a pros and cons to each approach. Uh, I don't think time will tell, uh, you know, different exchanges have taken different approaches to that. But I also think we need to be a bit humble sometime in the crypto community. I know we are, many of us, we don't like what TradFi does, what the banks do, for example. But the reality is the traditional banking se sector has gone through its load of crises over the years. And there's actually pretty good processes that have been in place over the years to try to address a range of issues. For example, I'm a big fan of SOC 1, SOC 2 review mechanisms. Even, even you can argue to a certain extent financial audits. There's a lot of agreed upon procedures that actually a lot of firms can use where a lot of the big consulting firms that Big Four will do. So I think there are a lot of these best practices. IASC is one of them. You know, there's a lot of these best practices that have been in place in TradFi for many years that I think the crypto, especially the centralized crypto ecosystem, where these big centralized players could benefit and actually, I've been quite pleasantly surprised to see over the last uh, couple of months, many of the large uh, players go through these certifications that are offered by these large consulting firms. Are these perfect? No. Are there a step in the right direction? Absolutely. I think yeah. this is something that actually we should also celebrate and welcome, not only, by the way, as, as a crypto ecosystem, but also for the regulators and the broader society uh, as a whole. Yeah, I mean, something like SOC 1, SOC 2, it's it's an IT certification. But if we think about it, the core of cryptocurrency at the technology layer, you're managing private keys. It's an IT level system. And if you're not doing the work to maintain the hygiene on your technology systems that underpin this, it just leaves open a hugely vulnerable asset, right? Digital money, you know, you've got to be really good at your technology operations process. Transparency as well, by the way, what you guys yeah. got, Chainalysis, for example, is a good yeah. idea. You know, when I teach, you know, I, I train a lot of regulators and I still do, and I do the same with central bankers and other financial services professionals. And, you know, I think there's a big misconception, like, you know, when I tell everybody, all my audiences, you know, if you're a criminal and you're using Bitcoin, I mean, you're an idiot. The probably worst thing to use if you're a criminal, I mean, good old cash is still the best way, you know, if you want to hide your traces, you know, especially at smaller sizes. And I think that often people don't underestimate the, how powerful tools like, like like what you guys have at Chainalysis and others, by the way, to be fair, have become. You know, in many ways, you're probably better off using the traditional banking system with trust and lawyers and it's a lawyer attorney privilege in different jurisdictions to hide your assets. As many of the, the law enforcement uh, listening to your audience knows, you don't want to do an investigation that's going to take 10 years. You know, you want the one that's going to take a couple of months or one year that you can, you can show it. It's public. You get a promotion. You know, that's so I think crypto is a pretty good fast way to solve some of these cases, which I mean, if you're going to start doing a request to different law enforcement agencies around the world, they will take you months and years and uh, probably will not be there. So I think it's very interesting how the public perception of crypto, especially when it comes to illegal activity or nefarious activity versus the reality, it's often day and night. It's such an interesting mechanism. We've been able to map ransomware organizational structure by looking at how they distribute payments after a ransomware attack, right? Because they they pay everybody in crypto and then they buy all the services that run the ransomware infrastructure. And it's led to some you know meaningful takedowns of some of these more bad actors. You couldn't do that if people were handing off bags of cash, right? The records just aren't there. 
I would argue even this right now, and this is going to be, I think, one of the big debates we'll have as a crypto community over the years. Right now, that plays, in my opinion, in crypto's favor because it makes, you know, a regulator is more comfortable, government's more comfortable to a certain extent that there's a bit of transparency. We can keep the bad actors away. However, I think in a couple of years, as stable coins are getting more adopted, as cryptocurrencies are becoming mainstream, that's going to be a flaw of cryptocurrencies. Ironically, today, a swift bank transfer is probably in many ways more private and confidential then a crypto transaction. If I pay you right now in, in Bitcoin or I give you a stable coin, obviously, you know, my wallet There's ways you can reverse engineer. If I'm a business that runs on crypto, you could in theory reverse engineer my cash flow statement, you know, and that obviously brings up a whole different suite of issues from security to, you know, uh, confidential information. And I think this is why we're going to need to have at one point a debate on the need of privacy in payments. Right now, yeah. many people will say, oh, that's what we need Monero. That's what we need certain features of other coins like Zcash and others. But I think as a university professor, you know, I've been teaching crypto since 2015 in university. From an academic perspective, I'm very excited to see some of the recent research that has been taking place. Uh, there was some with Vitalik recently, with what's happening on zero knowledge proof ecosystem, if you want. I'm very excited at some of the innovation that is going in that space. But for right now, in 2023, 2024, I think it's still a positive. It's great as firms like yours that are doing this job. At one point over the next decade, this will become an issue. We're going to need to find ways to providing the comfort, but without actually hampering our right to privacy. I think that's yeah. going to be a very, very interesting uh, debate to see it, over the next couple. It really is. We talk a lot about it on the show, which is you know this tension between transparency and privacy. And I think because of the original design of blockchain, we substituted anonymity for privacy, right? We said, well, you don't know who's behind this wallet address. So you you don't, it doesn't matter. Everything's private by default, but obviously that wasn't really true because it becomes, as you said, pretty easy to reconstruct past transactions if you're collecting the data and then you can sort of follow everybody's activity all around. And I would have to imagine in your business, running a trading fund, you don't want everyone seeing your trades. You don't want people front running you. You don't want, you need a level of, of privacy to that transactional history and, and future activity, right? I mean, for a lot of uh, market neutral hedge funds, we trade it only with centralized exchanges, right? And there's yeah. obviously a lot of uh, security elements behind. But I think you're absolutely right. I think this element of the privacy and payments, especially when it comes to digital assets, will be a big debate. And by the way, I think this is not only when it comes to cryptocurrencies. I think it's going to be one of the things we're going to debate as a society. You know, what you mentioned before, there's anonymity and privacy. It works if, if there's no off-ramp exchanges. We're all operating in a Bitcoin world and there's never need of KYC. Yeah, that's true. You'll never find out who it is. But the reality is there's this fiat world that needs to interact with the crypto world. And that's where I think the, it's going to happen. I think what's interesting now is the reason criminals are still able to use digital assets is ironically because of the slowness of the traditional world. So for example, if there's a love scam going on, a pig butchering or whatever these like things and somebody sends crypto, by the time the person finds out that it was a scam, by the time I go to my law enforcement, by the time there's a request to the exchange, by the time they go freeze that asset, that money is easily already gone. And uh, you know, the, so the speed is helping a lot of these fraudsters, for example. But I also believe this is going to be a big debate when it comes to the CBDC area. I genuinely believe, maybe not this presidential election that we're coming up in the US, but two or three presidential elections from now or prime minister, other, other elections in many countries, privacy and payments, especially when it comes to CBDCs, will be a critical topic of election. You know, I think some parts of the world, you know, parts of Asia, countries like China, even parts of the Middle East, will, will go ahead and we'll have CBDCs that are mainstream. You know, other parts of the world, the, the Europe or the US, I think it'll be very difficult to have a CBDC that is actually a retail CBDC that is being used on a day-to-day -day basis because of the fears around privacy and government uh, interference. So I think it's going to be very interesting. We may have a bipolar world of those who are using CBDC and where 
we're sacrificing personal privacy for the collective interior, a lack of crime, lower ma- uh, money laundering, a better better society versus the one where we don't want to provide, we're afraid that the interference that governments and access can have to our own personal privacy. I think that's going to be a very, very interesting debate over the next couple of years. Yeah, there's people who are fired up on both sides of that topic, I think. One thing I'm curious about, you mentioned counterparty risk a few minutes ago, and it seemed like during 2022, there was not only counterparty risk, but concentration risk, where we had a number of crypto lending firms offering incredible retail rates. But on the back end, in order to support that, they were all lending to what turned out to be a very small number of of institutions, right? Three Arrows Capital being maybe the most well-known. And then Three Arrows, in order to generate return, was you know, making some kind of outlandish bets, as it turns out, that that went badly for them. And, th- and that led to a lot of the, the collapse that probably undermined, you know, at least some of, of FTX beyond the, the fraud they were committing, obviously. I'm curious how you think about the ecosystem now. Like, is there less concentration risk or is there maybe more awareness and you're able to manage around this concentration risk? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that I, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about. I think you're right. There is still some players are very big, you know, in the the crypto ecosystem, you know, not to name names. But I think the problem when it comes to this concentration risk, and I think I have to say that the ecosystem has grown a lot in the last, not only last couple of years, but in particular the last uh, 12 months. For example, today, if, uh, you know, anything would have happened to Binance, there's a number of players that would have easily been able to to capture if you want that flow subsequently. So I think the industry is definitely more mature than it was a couple, not a long couple uh, months ago, but, but definitely a couple of years ago as well. Yeah. Uh, I think the what's interesting now is the counterparty risk mitigation mechanisms have dramatically improved. Uh, so today, for example, uh, with most of the exchanges you know we trade with, uh, there's different mechanism with certain custodians where we're able to actually mitigate the counterparty risk. For example, you leave your assets at a certain custodian and you're able to actually trade on a, on a separate exchange using the assets that you have in this particular custodian. And even um, it's public, we can mention Binance announced that they also are looking at doing something similar in having a known regulated custodian where people can leave their assets and trade on exchange or this could be done by a bank, for example, and other, and other third parties. Of course, then you have counterparty risk towards that custodian or that bank, but at least it mitigates some of the risk that people have, the perceived risks in particular against some of these crypto exchanges. So I remain, I think I'm very pleasantly surprised again of the fast moving innovation and offerings that have taken place, especially from the custody world. Yeah. Uh, I think one thing that doesn't get enough credit is I think the custodians in the crypto space have done a tremendous job in the last 12 months in improving their offering and making a very practical I would even argue that today there's more custodians than there's actually demand for it. With his ass managers for it. So I think the infrastructure now is very solid. You know, whereas I remember, you know, 2018, 17, we would talk about, you know, we need custody. We were not there yet. Yeah. Uh, whereas right now, I would argue that from a custody perspective, especially the industry is very, very well served. You know, so I think that's there's a lot of positive things. Are there still some big players? Yes. But I would argue to a certain extent, it's also the case in TradFi. I mean, you have a couple of players dominate the market. Liquidity brings liquidity and so on and so forth for the same exact reasons that are also applicable in TradFi. Totally agree. We actually had one of the co-founders of Anchorage Digital on the podcast. And so we talked all about kind of the emergence of the custody ecosystem. They're a federally chartered bank, which really starts to set them apart from, you know, the historical custody providers, much higher standard of scrutiny, I think, on their operations in order to, you know, have that authorization here in the U.S. market. And I see that maturity happening across a lot of the other custodial providers in the ecosystem, which is great. And to be honest, you know, I think many of them did 
it of their own accord, right? I mean, a lot of them went and not only, you know, you mentioned obviously Anchorage with his, with his bank charter, but a lot of these firms did it for also regulatory purposes. For example, to bring it back to Dubai, for example, VARA, for me, if a custodian is regulated by VARA, I know exactly what kind of reporting they're giving, what kind of addresses they're giving to the regulators. I mean, it's very Toro. It'd be difficult for them to do something that is, you know, a, a fraudulent, frankly, at least with what they're providing. But also I would say a lot of them did it out of best practices. I think the level of uh, governance, processes, procedures that a lot of these custodians have worked on over the last 12 months has been very impressive. And again, as an ecosystem, you know, not that we should tempt them, but I think there's obviously a whole world of crypto that defy decentralization that will take place. I'm a big believer in that. And I believe people should have a choice and the option to go on, on decentralized networks and, you know, from trading to other activities. But I also believe that actually the DeFi world will cohabitate for a foreseeable future with a, cent with a CeFi world. And for that CeFi world, if you want traditional financial institutions to come in, a lot of the big institutional capital, you need to have decentralized players that are actually really operating at the international standards. And I'm happy to say that actually today, I would believe that, especially from a custody perspective, the industry has come a very long way. It's incredible to watch. I'm curious, we've talked quite a bit about the situation in Dubai, but you lived for a long time in Hong Kong and they've gone through an interesting, at first were an early point of genesis, I think for the, the crypto ecosystem. And then more recently, it seemed like crypto sort of banned and we saw a departure, I think of a, a large number of firms who then relocated maybe to Dubai or Singapore. But then in the last few months, that's reversed course and Hong Kong's open again. What's your take on the situation there? You know, should should we should we expect to talk to you again in the future? You'll be maybe back in Hong Kong. Where, what do you think? You know, often uh, people don't realize the really the the role that Hong Kong has played in the birth and the growth of the crypto ecosystem. Yeah, there's a book that was written about us about it was Block Kong about the 20, 21 people who created the crypto ecosystem in in Hong Kong. And really, if you think about it, many of the companies that we have today, were really created there. Think about Binance, FTX, Sam yeah. launched it there. Tether was created in Hong Kong. Actually, still the legal entity that holds the Tether is a Hong Kong entity. Crypto.com was on Wyndham Street in Hong Kong. Block One, bullish, all created there. And the list goes on and on and on of Hex Trust and, you know, and many uh, others, uh, you know, that, that came out over the years. Animoca. So there's many players that really created in Hong Kong. And it was a mix at a time of, I think, this entrepreneurship vibe that was there with them being a hub and many elements that came at the same time that made Hong Kong a big powerhouse in crypto. And if you were in crypto in 2016, 17, like I've been in crypto since 2013, and I organized my first crypto event in January 2014 at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce of Hong Kong. And really, from that period till about two, three years ago, Hong Kong was the place to be. Uh, there was obviously some challenges afterwards, especially COVID that made it very difficult. I'm very happy to see Hong Kong get a resurgence now in uh, when it comes to digital assets. Uh, for full transparency, for full disclosure, and I, I served for about, I believe, five years or six years on the advisory committee of the, Hong Kong, the regulator in Hong Kong. So, you know, I've seen these ups and downs and the changes happened there. I think the rules are very strict right now, which is, I think, very good. And I think there are certain players for which Hong Kong is a great hub. Uh, there are certain players for which Singapore is a great hub. There are certain players for which Dubai is a great hub. But I think definitely anybody who's in crypto knows the outsized role that Asia plays in crypto. And I think that's not going to go away uh, anytime soon. Yeah, it's exciting. As we're wrapping up, I wanted to play a rapid fire game. And I know this is one of your, uh, your special tricks. I don't have a bell. <laughs> There's no bell involved here, but... I found a post that you uh, you published in January of this year. So it's almost 12 months old as we're recording this. Your top 10 predictions for 2023. I'd love to go through 
quickly and just kind of score how you did. Uh, you know so much about the industry. You've been around so long. Let's test your powers of future prediction by going back. Just at that point, you know, that prediction has been going on since 2015. So since 2015, I've been writing every year my top 10 predictions of crypto for the year ahead. So I would love to see that that the trend. It's funny you mentioned this today. I was speaking to my agent and he said, hey, Henry, you, you got to write your 2024 one. And I was like, oh, it's, it's my weekend activity coming up this weekend or next to, to get that together. So I'm, I'm impressed you, you still write it and it's not an LLM behind the scenes, right? Um, you just... <laughs> I wish you could use LLMs, but uh, you know, the reality is like for like, insights that are there, you know, yeah. point of view, unfortunately, or fortunately, the LLMs are, are not there yet. I Totally agree. So number one, best practices from TradFi to enter crypto industry, ironically. How do you think we did on that one? I think I think I was right. I mean, by the way, uh, every year I get some predictions right and wrong. I think this is one I was right. I think a lot of the best practices from SOC 1, SOC 2, Type 1, Type 2, uh, IAC, and many others have been now adopted by the crypto industry in the last 12 months. So I think that's a prediction that I'm very happy to see came through. Thumbs up on that one. I agree. Number two, central banks accelerate their CBDC development. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at data recently. Really, I think now we have over 90% of central banks that are doing some kind of experimentation on both wholesale and retail CBDC. And I think that's going to accelerate uh, uh, in 2024 as well. Uh, countries that I'm very impressed in, by the way, is UAE, India. I think India made tremendous progress the last 12 months. I think that doesn't get the media attention it deserves. Where I'm a bit, let's say, things have been gone slower on the CBDC side is some parts of Europe and other parts of the world. But fortunately or unfortunately, CBDCs will, will become mainstream in our lives and cash will, be, of course, be banned. And we're the generation that's going to see the third form of central bank money, CBDCs in our lifetime, for sure. Interesting. I think I'm up for that one. No more cash. I hate carrying cash around. So di digitize everything. Number three, stable coins are the new safe haven crypto assets. Absolutely. This is another one I think, I'm, and I believe uh, is just the beginning. We have over 140 billion in assets now in stable coins. And it really depends where your people are. So if I, if you're in the US and you live in New York and your family, everybody, your life is 99% in the US, doesn't really impact you. Ask anybody in Turkey of your listeners and how the role that uh, stable coins are playing. Anybody in Latin America, I mean, pretty much any uh, business individual that I meet in Latin America across the continent who is doing international trade is using stable coins. Uh, there's no question that people that are in Lebanon, people in parts of Africa, there's genuine a usage of stable coins right now. And I have to say it's moving way faster than I anticipated. So yeah, I think that's another one that I think I'm uh, pleasantly, I'm very happy to see that actually is getting traction. Yeah, we did some analysis on this recently. And what my team saw was 50 to 60% of all transactional activity on chain involves stable coins. So it's not just people who are, you know, maybe trading out of uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, avoiding some volatility, but they want to hold a digital asset. Like this is actually being used for transacting, sending value between people. And it's a huge portion of the crypto ecosystem right now. Absolutely. And in many countries, you know, you go to a lot of people in Argentina just basically living off stable coins, you know, especially you can lend it, you can get a proper yield. Fortunately for those who are in government countries where they have good central banks, good governance, you maybe you don't need it. But unfortunately, there's a big chunks of the world where people don't trust their governments. And unfortunately, they've been doing a bad job. The list goes on and on and we can go on for hours naming them. And I think at least people have an option. I really believe people should have a choice and option. And I think that's that's amazing, the role that stable coins are playing. So number four, Ethereum continues its dominance. Yeah, and this one, I'm not sure I got it right, to, to be honest. Uh, I was uh, I really believe that post FTX, there'll be kind of a flight to safety on layer ones as well. I'm not sure that really happened. Of course, it, uh, Ethereum has a great dominance in 
from DeFi to even stable coins we just mentioned. But I have to say that I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised that many of the other layer ones that people thought were dead actually are doing, I've seen quite a lot of activity from, you know, Solana, Algorand, and many, many others, you know, that have been, they've been active in the, in the last couple yeah. of months. I've been very, very impressed, actually. It's not only Ethereum, but which is good for the ecosystem. There's more layer ones in activity. Yeah. I think if you look at it from a dollar's perspective, Bitcoin and Ethereum are, you know, about a trillion dollars of market cap in an ecosystem that's maybe one, three, one, four, depending on the day. So certainly dominating that way. But I'm surprised people continue to launch new layer ones and layer twos, right? It feels like there's another one coming out every few weeks. So the there's still a lot of dynamism in that layer of the technology Absolutely. stack. And also you think about it on that, you know, if uh, you go some of these and there's very strong communities as well, you know, think about coins like Cardano, think about yeah. uh, Chainlink, uh, Polkadot, and the list goes yeah. on and on. They're very strong uh, communities that people are very big believers in, right? And I think that's great for the ecosystem, right? It creates community. I think that's, that's fantastic. Think about Avalanche, think about what you're seeing with uh, Solana, with all right, number five, regulatory tsunami is coming. Oh, I think the tsunami uh, not only was coming, now it came as well. <laughs> you know what I always said, if you're a U.S. policymaker or a politician and you you were not anti-crypto in the last year, I mean, you're an idiot. It's a great yeah. thing. It's bipartisan. Everybody loves, you know, it was easy to bash crypto. I would even argue that some of the CEOs of crypto exchanges, like we saw recently, are very easy targets, you know. Yeah. Foreigners, they're there. Bomb, I think so. Um, I was very not I'm not surprised at all that there was a regulatory, regulatory tsunami. Was that all bad? I think some regulators, without naming them, I think they went completely overboard. And frankly, uh, from a legal perspective, I think these a lot of decisions will be turned around by hopefully by the judiciary. But I think overall, the industry will come out stronger after that regulatory tsunami. Yeah, good regulations are good. That's my takeaway there. Number six, DeFi's rise to be catalyzed. Oof, this one, I, I mean, I'm a massive believer in the world of DeFi. I really believe that, you know, if one thing we often forget after FTX, you know, CeFi, you know, and everybody was afraid of another collapse. Uh, what's been interesting is, you know, DeFi during the whole FTX saga did perfectly well, continued to operate perfectly well. I really believe there will be more excitement and more capital going to DeFi. It happened, by the way, of course, the DeFi ecosystem has, has grown, although it dropped from its high, but it's still continuing to grow. I was probably maybe too naive. I believe that it was going to grow faster, but I think this is one that I was, I'm not right, uh, but I was, I'm not wrong, but I was not perfectly right either. I think I'm yeah. probably somewhere in between. I think maybe what the the rate limiter on that ecosystem is right now is, is kind of the point you were making about some of the operational cleanup that we saw on centralized platforms, right? Where they are adopting some TradFi practices. I think that process, it hasn't happened yet in DeFi. And so institutional money is still hesitant oh, to really touch some of these DeFi systems. And that's going to be the big unlock. I think the first oh. player in DeFi that really goes down that path of building an institutional grade system probably has a massive opportunity in front of them. That's maybe my prediction for 24. Well, you know, from a trading perspective, some of the innovation in DeFi is absolutely mind-blowing. I'm really, I think from a technical perspective, academic perspective, trading perspective, what we're seeing in DeFi is mind-blowing right now. Yeah. But for that to become a bit more mainstream, we don't need to mainstream, but let's say mainstream in the crypto community already, I think it went a bit slower than I expected it. But let's see, maybe 2024 is the year. There we, there we go. We got one prediction for your 2024 list. Web3 continues its growth with gaming being the catalyst. Yeah, that's an interesting one as well. I think this one, I was a bit too bullish on it. I was, I would say I'm a bit wrong. I'm a massive believer in the potential of gaming. I think people often underestimate
appreciate how big the gaming industry is. It's obviously bigger than TV, the movie industry and sports put together. Industries like esports, gaming, I think have tremendous potential. And I think they will be the bridge for the next billion users to come into crypto will be via gaming. I have no doubt about it, which I believe also will happen in the in the UAE and, and the Middle East, by the way. Countries like Saudi Arabia, PIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, is investing $29 billion in gaming. The UAE is doing tremendous investments in gaming and esports. And this is why I'm even more bullish on the Middle East, by the way, in the UAE and countries because of this interaction. But I think where I was wrong my prediction is uh, I thought this was going to happen maybe in a bigger way in 2023, and it didn't happen. I would argue potentially because of the bad press around crypto, I don't think this really helped the gaming sector. If you're a gaming company, you're probably better off last in the last year staying away from crypto and then being uh, getting closer. Number eight, every Fortune 500 company announces its metaverse strategy. Oof. I think this one, I was probably wrong as well. You know, when this happened, I was, you know, I'm a big believer, I would say still of the metaverse ecosystems. Uh, we've seen some countries really take big bolds moves here. I mean, again, not to brag on the UAE, but here in the UAE, uh, many government ministries have to offer their services in the metaverse. VARA was the first regulator to set up a presence in the metaverse. And I was happy to see countries even set up a presence there and so on and so forth. Uh, I think where I was a bit too optimistic, I believe that every country was going to, you know, uh, have their own defined metaverse strategy, Web3 strategy. Again, I was wrong there, I think. Uh, so this is one that I missed. Where I think also, I'm not surprised, was again, there was a lot of bad connotation with crypto in the past year. And you're probably better off staying away from crypto in, uh, in the last year. So I think that played a role in it as well. But I was definitely wrong on this one. I think with the launch of that new Apple headset, the Vision Pro, like may maybe there's a comeback on this one. But yeah, I, I would say that we definitely missed the mark for 2023. Number nine, self-custody makes a comeback. Oof, this is a tricky one. You know, post FTX, uh, I remember that I think companies like Ledger were having record sales. And I really believe that for some time, self-custody was going to make a comeback. I would say that I'm still a bit wrong on that because while there was a lot of fear in the early days, uh, I think now people are getting more and more comfortable with decentralized players. And I think there's a, while self-custody is great for people that are, I would say, knowledgeable on crypto and are comfortable with it as well. Uh, I always give the example of my mom. My mom would never be able to use, a, a, <laughs> never be able to self-custody. So I think that, where I was wrong, I think there's, um, I think self-custody will have play a role, by the way, with, it's called third-party custody. But I think that I probably overestimated or I was too ambitious on the role that it was going to play. So I think this is another one I was wrong. I think people still prefer, prefer centralized custody in many cases. Yeah, the, the user experience is, is still too hard and the risks are too high, right? You might carry a few digital assets in MetaMask on your phone, but you're definitely not putting your entire net worth there if you're smart. Last one, number 10. NFTs become even more mainstream. I forgot about these, huh? I should revisit <laughs> them. So NFTs, I think at this one I was wrong as well in the sense that NFTs definitely became more mainstream. Uh, we saw with MDA Top Shots and a lot of the activities that was going on from luxury shops to others. I would say that they were probably main, became very popular because of the wrong reasons, right? So obviously the, the hype around them and, and so on and so forth. Where I was probably wrong, I, if I remember correctly in the article, I talk about how we're going to be able to see them in day-to-day -day usage. Like I, I still don't understand why my university diploma is not an NFT, why my driver's license it's not an NFT, my passport. I think, unfortunately, we've had a lot of NFT activity on artistic side, maybe, or some more funky stuff, but real proper use cases that are so much needed, like some of the stuff I mentioned, like from land titles to any kind of government document, we're still very far from having them on NFTs, unfortunately.
So I was wrong on that one as well. Yeah, I'm trying to keep score here in the background. And I, I think I think you actually did pretty well here, right? Predicting the future is hard. I'm going to give you maybe a six and a half out of 10, which is I would consider that to be outstanding, right? That's exactly. uh, that's you, very well done. What I love to do is go back to my prediction from 2015. I should put them all together. Maybe in one poll yeah. for all of them. Yeah. It shows you how much the ecosystem has grown uh, over the years. That would be a good, uh, good post, actually. I, I would read that post. I'm there for that. Uh, actually, it's not a bad one. It's pretty much uh, nine years of... Uh, year to year but i think uh now you put me on the spot i need to actually write my 2024 predictions as well as per the tradition we well, we'll stop it now we'll wrap up this conversation so you can get to work on on 2024 <laughs> predictions henry this has been fantastic where where's the best place for people to find you online follow all the the content that you're producing the best way i'm pretty much on across all channels uh from linkedin to my youtube page to twitter it's a henry h-e-n-r-i the good old french canadian way and arslanian a-r-s-l-a-n-i-a-n good old armenian name but i think the best way is by linkedin twitter uh youtube I, po I post a lot of educational content on youtube i have my own podcast called the future of money with Henry Arslanian and I have obviously a lot of other uh, content across other channels so great to connect with anybody uh, happy can reach out to me on any of these uh, platforms fantastic we'll link to all of that in the show notes so people can find you and definitely sign up for the podcast it's a fantastic list and you get some great guests on there thank you thanks for having me and thank you everybody for at the, at the chain analysis family for all the good work you guys have done for the growth of the ecosystem hey there thanks for listening to another episode if you enjoyed what you heard today do me a favor Open up your podcast app, rate the show, give us a review, and tell us what you liked. Even better, you can share the podcast with your friends. And of course, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. As many of you know, last week was deemed a watershed moment in crypto when the first U.S. Bitcoin spot ETF was approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission. This has opened the door for large institutional firms like BlackRock and Fidelity to provide these products to customers. Just like the lawsuits and the battles to get to this point, last week's announcement came with its own drama. Just prior to the official announcement, the SEC X account was compromised and hackers put out a false statement that the ETFs had been approved, even though an official announcement had yet to be made. With all the confusion in the ecosystem, scammers took full advantage and posted links for fake SEC refund tokens that drained connected wallets. For sample images covered in our SEC scam blog, head down to the show notes and listen out for next week's episode, which will have Jeff Billingham, my colleague here at Chainalysis, to share everything you need to know about these exciting new financial products known as the Bitcoin ETFs.